Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I'm Leah Heigl and I'm here with my co-host Aidan Muir and this episode we will be discussing intermittent fasting. So there are a lot of big claims made about intermittent fasting. Uh, Weight loss is definitely a big one that is always brought up and kind of thrown around. Uh, But there are other ones that we're going to go over as well. So in terms of claims, there are people saying that there's reductions in cancer risk, um, potentially improving IBS symptoms, um, and a handful of other common ones. So we're going to go through them one by one like we usually do and kind of just discuss the research and, and what we know so far. Awesome. So we'll start with the obvious. We'll start with the definition of what intermittent fasting is. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's alternated cycles of fasting and eating. So the most common example of that is 16-8 fasting, which is where you would fast for 16 hours of the day and you would have an eight-hour eating window. And obviously it can fit a lot of criteria. Like it could be like as little as a short 12-hour fast or as much as a 48-hour fast could fit this kind of intermittent fasting window. What we're not talking about, though, and it's often lumped in here, like, is we're not talking about long fasts. So, like, we're not talking about, like, week-long fasts or longer or anything like that. We're literally just talking about what we're talking about, intermittent fasting. (laughs) So let's start, now that we've done the definition, with the number one thing that always comes up, and that is weight loss or fat loss. Um, So... Let's start simple in that there is no difference between intermittent fasting and not fasting, but having the very same calorie deficit. So when calories are matched and you're in a deficit, weight loss and fat loss is going to be the same regardless of if you're fasting or if you're eating really regularly throughout the day. The end of the day, it it does come down to calories in versus calories out. Hate to be that dietitian, that person to say that. Obviously, there's nuance, um, but the nuance nuance just doesn't really come into play here so much because fasting doesn't do anything magical to our physiology that helps like speed our metabolism up or uh, do anything else magical or other claims that are made to help with fat loss or weight loss from that regard alone. What might be useful and is something that some of my clients have done or or people have had success with is use intermittent fasting as a tool to be in a calorie deficit. So some people find that when they have shorter periods of windows of eating throughout the day uh, and those times fasting, that they're just able to stick to a calorie deficit better, their their adherence is better. Um, And for those people, fasting can work really well. It just doesn't do anything magical to our bodies in order to lose body fat or weight yeah that was a good summary and yeah exactly like there's nothing magical it can be a good tool for some people it might be a less good tool for other people it's a personal preference thing as to what people find easier to achieve that totally personal preference because I find people some people try intermittent fasting and then find during the window of time they get to eat they maybe indulge a little too much or they're like their appetite has gotten to a point where they're ravenous and then they overeat so for them it might be a start of like a restricted binge cycle or it might just not be a good tool for them but there's definitely been people I've worked with where it has been a useful tool yeah I'm in that mindset, but I was, um, I did a seminar this morning on relationship with food. And like one of my things is like, if somebody has a poor relationship with food, I probably wouldn't look at fasting, even though I'm like, it's a tool that you can use. And like, I'd say on average, most people who fast will end up in a calorie deficit. 
But like, as you said, it has that potential for that restrict and binge and everything like that kind of cycle. I've seen that TikTok, like, you know, when people put stars when they say stuff and it's like, there's a TikTok where it's like, <laughs> not actually fasting. It's it's just restrict and binge with a nice name. <laughs> just a fancy way to say it. Yeah. But anyway, it can, it can be a useful tool for a lot of people as well. Yeah. Anyway, so... Another thing I want to touch on, which is probably the least interesting thing for people, but I do want to talk about is like, how could this affect muscle growth? So briefly going through this, we know that spreading protein intake throughout the day theoretically should help muscle growth. And this is backed up by all this research showing that muscle protein synthesis is often maximized by as little as 20 to 40 grams of protein in a sitting, depending on the size. And going above these kind of numbers does not seem to lead to any larger acute spikes in muscle protein synthesis. But something that I've always found really interesting about this research is that during a calorie deficit, when calories and protein are matched, muscle retention is often similar for people with a higher meal frequency and a lower meal frequency. All the research on intermittent fasting with decent amounts of protein, people seem to be retaining muscle quite well. And it's clearly not the end of the world, particularly in a calorie deficit. The tricky thing is we don't really have that much research in a calorie surplus, for exactly the reasons we were talking about before, it's hard to, over, it's harder to overconsume calories or create a calorie surplus when you only have a small eating window. So pretty much all of the research people just incidentally end up in a calorie deficit. But that being said, the research is still clear enough to be like, even though total protein intake matters more than distribution, what appears to be ideal for building muscle is spreading it out over four to six meals across the day that amount of protein that 20 to 40 grams or even higher potentially over four to six servings across the day and you probably don't need to be eating protein from the second you get up until the second you go to bed yeah 100 like, percent. it doesn't need to be a massive eating window but it seems like a 10 to 12 hour eating window is what would be required to maximize this so even something like 16 8 fasting would not be maximizing it but i am also of the opinion it probably doesn't make that big of a difference. Like hitting a total protein intake is probably like 90% of what you could do. And to get that last 10%, spreading it out over a slightly larger eating window and across the day probably helps a little bit more. Yeah, if there's an athlete who is, let's say, in a calorie deficit and their focus is to retain as much muscle as possible, but they know that using some kind of fasting allows them to adhere better to that diet. Like there's no there's no reason why I'd go, oh, let's not do that thing that works really well for yeah. you based on this fact alone or like optimizing muscle retention because it's like that tiny little bit. Um, so it doesn't really make the most significant difference. Mm. Um, so there's also the concept of gut rest. So when we're talking about intermittent fasting and the claims around IBS, people usually say that, it is helpful because your gut needs time to, to just rest so it's not digesting food. Uh, this is kind of an interesting one because I don't really know what their mechanism behind this is, but the, the gut doesn't really need to rest. It is, it's made to be functioning all of the time, kind of like your other internal organs that are made to be functioning all of the time doesn't necessarily need to rest um so the concept alone doesn't have a lot of merit to it um from a practical perspective if you are limiting food in general so let's say in times or periods of time where you are fasting no food is coming in you might see a reduction in symptoms during that time because you're not having any food come in so i think that's where things can get a little bit confusing 
Uh, on the flip side of that, it could mean that you're eating larger portion sizes during the times that you do get to eat or those windows of time, which could exacerbate IBS symptoms because you're generally having larger portions of food in a single sitting. Uh, so it can kind of go both ways. Again, there's nothing magical about kind of gut rest or anything. If you're seeing improvements in symptoms, it probably has a little bit to do with the fact there are times where no food is coming in. Um, there also is the fact that maybe it puts you in a calorie deficit. So overall, you're just eating less, less food, less things to trigger your IBS symptoms, less symptoms. Um, so in that way, it, it does make sense. But there's not a lot of merit to fasting being particularly beneficial for IBS symptom reduction. It's something I see in practice a lot. Like there's a lot of people who've tried it and they're like, yeah, I definitely felt better doing that and like often I do like to lean into pe things that people feel better doing but <clears throat> it often is exactly what you just said where it's like there's this period where they're not eating they feel better during that because they're not yeah. eating obviously but that's not to do with we've got rest but like I also think a large portion of it is they're eating less total food exactly like mm -hmm. what you said that calorie deficit because um, a common trend that I've just seen amongst clients anyway is Say somebody hasn't told me in the first session that they're bloated or they have GI symptoms or whatever and, and they want to be in a calorie deficit and I put them in a calorie deficit, suddenly they'll come back and tell me that they're way less bloated and stuff like yes. that. And I'm like, yeah. we're not even working on that. <laughs> You're just Like, oh, my stomach is so much more flat. Like yeah. I'm just feeling good. My digestion is good. It's like, yeah, you're just digesting less. Yeah, yeah, there's less to process. And it's the same thing. People who go into a calorie surplus often struggle more with IBS symptoms. And... The calories matched kind of perspective is something that's going to be a common theme throughout this podcast because it's important to look at it through that lens being like exactly what you said. If you have calories matched, like you're having the same amount of calories regardless of whether you have six meals across the day or whether you have a 16-8 kind of like that eight-hour eating window, if you're going to eat the same total calories, by definition, that would mean that in the eight-hour eating window, you'd have to fit more calories into that short space of time. And that could potentially lead to more issues. And then there's also the practical nature of like, what if you're just hungrier during that time and then you eat a large amount of food mm -hmm. and it's not calories matched, but you just happen to be eating more in that space of time. And you happen to eat foods that happen to be your triggers or whatever yes. and increased amount. Yeah. Super complex topic, particularly because like a lot of people will feel better doing it, but it's not for the gut rest reason or anything it's like that. It's not for the reason some people like to claim. Yeah. Yeah. Going into a bit more of a complex topic, we're going to be talking about some more like health specific stuff. I'm going to start off with a bit of the easier stuff. I'm going to talk about um, in this kind of broad topic, I'm going to be talking about the effect on cholesterol, blood glucose levels, blood pressure, insulin resistance, those kind of markers of health. So the first starting point is to understand that obviously the majority of studies on intermittent fasting show improvements in these markers of health. That That's obvious for a few reasons, but... It's one of those things, if you look through study individually, 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 and you look at stuff without context and everything like that, it's going to come out looking like it's um, pretty magical. <laughs> for yeah. um, but that is where context comes, comes into play because a calorie deficit is a driving explanation for a lot of these improvements in health. If you go into a calorie deficit for six weeks, for example, cholesterol often decreases, blood glucose levels decrease, blood pressure decreases, insulin resistance improves. Like all of these things happen regardless of the approach that you, was utilized for that. And then taking that a step further to, to other studies, on an acute basis, like short term, you can clearly see how intermittent fasting leads to improvements in these markers. The most obvious one, blood glucose levels. 
if you're not eating, there's nothing coming in that is going to be converted to blood glucose levels. During a fasting window, your blood glucose levels likely are going to decline. I, dec- I say likely because there's a lot of other mechanisms, like your liver could release glucose and all of these kind of things. But like just keeping it simple, on average, it's going to be a reduction in blood glucose levels. And that's why we come back to comparing on a calorie-matched basis. Because if we compare on a calorie-matched basis where one has a more frequent eating period across the day or whatever, and the other one has a short window... Um, that then gives us a different perspective because let's talk about that blood glucose levels example I just used. If somebody was fasting in that case and they were eating less or not at all outside of their eating window, by definition, they'd have to be eating more during their eating window than the other version, that other scenario would be eating across like any individual sitting, which therefore means after a large meal or whatever in that eating window, blood glucose levels would go higher because there's so much carbs, protein, whatever that could come in that could be converted to blood glucose levels. These things will balance out even though there's a bit more of a spike or whatever. That's why I talk about the calories matched kind of aspect. And obviously you can criticize that logic by being like, well, fasting typically does lead to a lower calorie intake like I just talked about. And that's fair. Like I think that is a fair criticism. But I also want to talk about from the calorie match perspective because it gives you flexibility. Like if you were going to achieve a certain calorie target with a different method, you now know that it's going to come with the same kind of outcome for these markers of health, which allows personal preference and allows you to choose whichever way you'd want to go about doing this. So getting into some of the, I guess, more confusing definitely feel free to jump in um so we're going to talk about cancer risk uh so this is this is a complicated one but we'll go over it uh in the depth that we we can in this kind of podcast and um, so there is a proposed theory that because fasting promotes something called autophagy it leads to a reduction in cancer risk So autophagy is basically the process of clearing out old cells. So in theory, this could be useful because cancer is literally due to cell mutations. So clearing away old and damaged cells could potentially reduce the likelihood of of cancer being an issue or or starting to grow. Uh, This is a really hard area of research to interpret, even kind of just looking at the few studies I I did. It's a very difficult thing to look into um, because going back to the calorie deficit thing, a calorie deficit also causes autophagy. It just causes it, I guess, more chronically where we're in fasting, we see acute bouts of autophagy. Um, so whether that it has a different outcome, that's the difficult thing to, to really interpret. Like is, is it a calorie deficit that is going to be preventative potentially for cancer risk or, or is it this acute kind of fasting uh, making this like acute autophagy uh, so yeah it's it's a really hard one <laughs> to, to look at do you have anything to say in that regard yeah I it's one of the things that like I get a lot of dms from people who like will send me studies on on this kind of topic yeah. being like you can see the autophagy this is why it's going to work or whatever but like we can't compare on a like-for-like basis with that. Like, we can't measure autophagy easily in a chronic calorie deficit and be like, like, what would be perfect, obviously, is like, let's look over a one-month time period and measure total autophagy with total calories matched, except one version does intermittent fasting Mm -hmm. and the other doesn't. That would be perfect. 
doesn't exist. <laughs> and my current stance on it is that I'm of the belief that there would be no difference in that yeah. case, which would therefore feed into the whole cancer topic being coming out equally, basically, as in there would be no difference between fasting or, or a regular calorie match diet with the same total food, the same types of food, the same everything. But it is a difficult area to interpret so, like, I'm ready to backpedal on that if I need to. Yeah. But my current stance is, and it has been my stance for a few years now, because yeah. I used to actually have the opposite opinion, my current stance is that there would be no difference. No difference between the two. Yeah, I think what, what is interesting is generally a point you made around having a, a lower body weight can reduce cancer risk, like we mm. know that. So it would make sense that, you know, a calorie deficit over a longer period of time leading to a healthier body weight would reduce cancer risk overall potentially. Uh, so that from a theoretical mechanism or even from the research makes a bit of sense, just like this acute autophagy that occurs in intermittent fasting, I'd say it's it's likely not going to have, again, a magical uh, impact on cancer risk. Yeah. And the other note that we're going to touch on is, or that we're actually not going to touch on, <laughs> is fasting as a cancer treatment. Because that, that's a completely separate topic to yes. fasting for cancer prevention. Um, and it's, a, it's honestly just like, because we like to keep these short and sweet, like it's too complex of a topic to touch on here, because arguably there is some merit to it under certain situations. And it's a very complex topic. And the logic is that fasting would reduce glucose available to fuel cancer cell growth. But the reason why we don't want to go into it here is because there are pros and cons and there are quite there are a lot of cons. So it, it's about weighing up whether the pros outweigh the cons. Um, and like there's cons like malnutrition, cancer cachexia is like one of the biggest factors in, yeah. in cancer being an issue um, amongst others, obviously. And that's often not, not even just intermittent fasting. Often it is prolonged fasting they're utilizing there. And yeah, we'll just leave that out. Of this whole time. other can of worms yeah. for another day. Yeah, it's interesting, but it's not for today. <laughs> yeah, 100%. What we will talk about, though, is longevity, and that's obviously something that feeds in with the cancer prevention kind of thing. And that was honestly one of my first interests in, in fasting and everything like that. Um, early, early on in my nutrition career, I, I was more interested in this and I was listening to a lot of people talking about it and everything like that, often that biohacking space, because it's an interesting topic. Like, And... The starting point from this topic is we have a fair amount of research, particularly in animal models, showing that calorie restriction, not necessarily fasting, but calorie restriction is, is associated with longevity. And we can see this far more easily in animal studies, partly because animal, like other animals with shorter lifespans, like we can study this because like, let's be real, is, is a human researcher with a finite lifespan going to spend time studying controlled stuff that's so slow? Um, but there's examples of this, like the most common example of this is research on monkeys where um, there's like twin rhesus monkeys is the most common one that has been studied that I'm aware of where they obviously have the same genetics, same everything, same environment, but one got fed 30% less calories than the other or one group got fed 30% calories less than the other and there was improved longevity in the ones that had 30% less calories. Theoretically, autophagy is a major factor there. You could also talk about other health factors like in, in humans, higher calorie intake is associated with a lot of other health outcomes too. So that's something to consider as well. Um, but then it's obviously hard to say that fasting provides these benefits more than having the same total calorie intake over longer timeframes. Um, another point that like we were briefly talking about off air as well is like animal research and fasting and stuff like that. 
because of different metabolisms and stuff like that, it doesn't necessarily always line up with humans. Like an example, and I'm quoting somebody else here, I'm quoting Menno Henselmans here. He was talking about like rodent studies having different metabolisms to the point that it's like one day of fasting for a rodent, his words, not mine, but his words were that one day of fasting is the equivalent of about one month for a human, just due to differences in lifespan, differences in metabolism, all of those kind of things. So how I was talking about how people like send me a lot of studies, like rodent studies is the most yeah. common that I get. And it's like, that's great. And even even if those differences weren't the same as they were, like we'd want to see studies in humans. Like we are human. We want to see more studies in humans on that topic. Um, and then even let's just go back to the calorie restriction side of things. All of these things are well and good, but like let's talk about that 30% less calorie kind of topic. The lower your average calorie intake is throughout your lifespan, the lower your body weight is going to be, right? And that's once again, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a lever that you can only pull so hard because you can't pull it so hard to the point that you are significantly underweight to the point that it causes issues, and you don't want to go to the point of malnutrition. And then there's implications for once people are past a certain age, being like, how about the risk of falls and stuff like that? Like, is that going to be a factor? And not only like obviously quality of life, but also longevity. Like if somebody fractures their hip, are they able to be as active for the next couple of years or whatever? Does that play a role as well in heart health, for example? And we know malnutrition causes issues. And then the other like last thing I'd probably touch on on that topic is at the opposite end of the spectrum, higher levels of muscle mass in humans mm. are associated with longevity. And like you can make an argument. It's like, hey, like we can have a slightly lower calorie intake on average, do more exercise to achieve that same kind of thing. But it's one of the things that instead of saying calorie restriction, my preferred way of saying it is appropriate calorie average over long term is probably a better marker for longevity. We don't have to go super low, but we also want to avoid going overly high as well. Yeah, it all comes down to maintaining what is a like would be considered a healthy body weight over the long term, more so yeah. than thinking about you don't need to always be in a calorie deficit to get these outcomes. Yeah, and yeah. one one other thing actually that I, I was just thinking of, but um. Back when I was listening to all those biohackers, um, like I never actually like applied any of this stuff, but I was uh, like, it was just an interesting topic, obviously, because it's, it, we all like a lot of people do care about this stuff. Mm. One of the points that some of them were making was that let's say there are benefits of some of these longer fasts or whatever. We could do them infrequently and reap some of these benefits. Like a lot of people were talking about like every three months or every quarter, cause they're like financial guys, <laughs> like every quarter <laughs> I do a 24 hour fast or whatever. Cause like if you're somebody who cares about growing muscle or whatever, like you probably don't want to be on low calories or fasting heaps frequently or whatever, potentially, cause it could make it harder to do that. Um, but fasting like every three months or so for 24 hours, like that's probably fine. And that way, if you're somebody who's like listening to this and you're still like, hey, I still want to like... Still <laughs> st- want to try it. I still want to try it. still want to see if there's benefits or whatever. Like that's also an option. It's not an option I like go out of my way to recommend, but it, it is an option amongst many. Yeah. I always like how um, like practical you are. You're like, oh, I'm not counting it out just yet. Like here's an option anyway. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so in terms of, again, practical takeaway. So fasting can potentially be a useful tool for some in order to create a calorie deficit. But outside of that, in regards to weight loss, it's definitely nothing magical. Um, we wouldn't 100% rule out the autophagy aspect that we've we've spoken about. Uh, it's something that we'd like to see more research in, see as kind of things and time progresses how that goes. Uh, but there are likely no inherent benefits of fasting. And I just say it comes down to personal preference. If you want to try it, try it. If you don't, don't. 
This has been episode 54 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. And as always, thank you so much for listening. 